Now we've said week on week on week that underlying this letter to the Ephesians, we see a broken world. A world of ruined relationships, a world that is at war with one another. And the Bible says the reason for that is in the third chapter of it all, we walked out on God and said we didn't want to do things his way. The man and the woman threw off what they saw as the oppressive shackles of God's loving rule over them. And they said, I I know best, I want to be in charge. They doubted God's character, they doubted his word. And so they got God wrong. And in came sin. And the world was broken. But you see, here's the thing. Now we not only get God wrong, we, we get leadership wrong. We get authority wrong. We, we want to be in charge and we want to rule, but not like God. We rule like tyrants. We rule in a way that is self-seeking. And so the world is at war. And we've said week on week on week that God has a plan, and it is a good plan. And it is a plan that will never fail. He is working everything in conformity out with the purpose of his world towards that plan. If you're here and you aren't a Christian and you would like to hear more about that plan or that is new for you, please do come and grab me afterwards. I'd love to chat to you. But what we'll see this morning is that in these verses, God's plan for the world, God's plan for the church, is to set the tone for how we relate to one another. His plan is not just a lofty and theoretical idea. Paul says when you get it, it changes how you live. Husbands and wives, it changes how you relate to each other. Children, parents, it changes you. Even in the workplace, your attitude is transformed. This isn't just a plan to think about on Sundays at church. This is a plan for every day. It changes everything. And in his plan, we have the church, a reconciled people, a people no longer at war, a people for whom we have peace. Because of the cross. And in the church we have a head. We have Jesus. A people, a a saviour who has loved and bought a people for himself. Who has reconciled humanity. Who's stopped the war. And as he is our head now. So the church we've said is a glimpse of where the world is going. A glimpse of when he will be head of everything. And he is our head, but he's not a tyrant. He's not self-serving. He is kind and patient and gentle. He pours himself out and he serves others. And so when we come to this section in Ephesians 5 and we start wrestling with headship and submission, which frankly makes us feel uncomfortable, it is utterly vital that we remember who our head is, what he is like. He is head of the household of God, and in the household of God, in part, we have these mini households who have heads who are to be like Jesus. 
So you see, headship is loaded. It's loaded because of our culture. We don't deal with authority well, whether we are the one in authority or whether we are looking up to those in authority. But it's loaded too because Paul wants to redefine headship for us in Ephesians. He says, don't think about headship as the world does. Think about headship like God does. So the wider context for us is key as we come to these verses. If we get that wrong, if we get Ephesians wrong, then we will get these verses very wrong. But the narrow context is key as well because we saw last week that verse 21 comes into this section. Which really means that our our section for this week began last week. Which really means we're still thinking, verse 17, verse 18, what it means to be a church that is filled with the Spirit. Remember last time the four verbs? We said speaking to one another, singing to the Lord, giving thanks to God, and submitting. And we are that kind of church family in Ephesians, a filled by the Spirit church family. And so we're thinking about Spirit filled marriages. We can't divorce the two sections. And as we consider these different things for husbands and wives, just notice as we begin, before we get into the text itself, that everybody is meant to be like Jesus. That underlies it. Wives, you are to be more like Jesus. We don't think less of Jesus as he submitted to his father. Husbands, Husbands, you are to be more like Jesus. We don't think less of Jesus as he pours himself out for the sake of his church. We are all to be like Jesus. So first point, following Jesus changes wives. Verse 22 to 24. Wives, Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Human marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. That's the foundation. It's clear here. It's particularly clear at the end of the, the end of the section in verse 33. Sorry, verse 32. I'm talking about Christ and the church. The mystery of marriage is that he is talking about Christ and the church. As the church submits to the Lord Jesus, verse 24, so the wife is to submit to her husband. Foundationally, marriage is a picture, the picture that God has given us to illustrate Jesus and his church. And that is not a cultural picture for their day. We can't rub out these verses and say, well, in that society then that may have been true, but we are much more advanced now. No, as wives submit now, in 2013, to their husbands, they are paralleling Christ and the church. Having said that, ours is a very different culture, so it does feel a bit different. Then... Then as a young woman got married, she would be kind of moving from the headship of her dad to her husband. 
the vast majority of the time now, the woman has left home and lived somewhere else. And it's a slightly weird, but in the marriage ceremony where you say, well, who gives this woman to be married? And the father of the bride sort of looks a bit sheepish and hands her over and says me and backs off. But the reality is she's just there for Christmas. Well, she's just got the surname. As wives submit now, they are paralleling the church and Christ. And immediately, some of us have got kind of pulses rising, questions bubbling up. I want to just say four things to unpack and try and clarify what I think this does not mean. What submission in marriage is not. I want to say, firstly, it is not inequality. Why? Because the Bible is very clear of the equal worth of husband and wife. It's not inequality, it's just different roles. Our problem with that is that the world thinks those who submit are in some way less valuable. That's never the story of the Bible. God the Son is not less valuable than God the Father. It's not inequality. I want to say as well, it's not oppression because the Bible is always clear and condemning of oppression. Sadly, this may have been a problem down the ages, may have even been a problem in churches. But that doesn't mean that we can throw the baby out with the bathwater. We can't do away with this concept because we've got it wrong in the past. It's not oppression. I want to say as well, it's not blind obedience. Hopefully that's obvious, but it's worth stating the obvious. So if I was to say to my wife, Zoe, can you pop into town, pop into Barclays, Take your gun and see what you can get. I can assure you she would refuse, quite rightly. Because first and foremost, she has to obey God. And if I'm asking her to sin, if I'm asking her to walk away from Christ, to not walk with Christ, to not live for him, then she should say no, and she will. And fourthly... I think this is quite important. I think submission is not just actions. So I think we can be a submitting but a grumpy wife. You can submit to your husband in actions, but actually not in your heart. It would be bizarre, wouldn't it, for the church to complain and grumble as she submits to Christ. Oh, suppose I'll go and make disciples of all nations then, muttering under her breath as she goes. It seems to me submission is a heart thing. It's a direction thing. It's not just what we do, but it's our attitude to the other. Actually, I think that applies to verse 21, as you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We're to be a community. We're to have a culture of submission. Joyful, loving, cheerful submission to one another. Not not through gritted teeth, but because we value and care for one another. So it's something you do in your heart. I want to say if you're here and you're single, a single woman, perhaps you don't want to be single or you'd like to marry. Just a couple of questions that it seemed to me spring from these verses. The first is, are you willing to submit? It's a hard question to ask. It's particularly hard because in our culture, in our workplace, we're taught leadership skills. We're taught to be assertive. We're taught to oversee others, to get our way. 
which can mean the dynamic between a husband and wife can be tricky. Because submission can cut against that kind of mentality. So are you willing to submit? Are you looking for someone you could submit to? I think these verses have got lots to say about the kind of potential future marriage partner. The sort of criteria we should think of. So if you're honest, are you looking for, I don't know, whatever a knight in shining armour is for you, a cross between someone who is a part-time male model and somebody who works for a children's charity? He loves kittens. <laughs> or in part, are you looking for somebody? Are you praying for somebody whom you could submit to? Who you would happily, willingly submit to? Who you would be prepared to be lovingly led by? I would say these verses consider that a key consideration. Something very important to, to hold in mind. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. So husbands, what about us? Following Jesus changes husbands, verse 25 to 33. Now, what do you think the flip side of submission is? What are you expecting Paul to say? What verb are you waiting for? Because surely we're expecting him to say lead, aren't we? That would make sense. Wives submit, husbands lead. No. No, it's not lead, it's love. Love your wives. And in case we miss it, and us husbands are slow, he says it three times. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Verse 28, husbands ought to love their wives. Verse 33, each of you also must love his wife. Husbands, our verb is love. He's redefining what leadership is. And to help us get that, he gives us the cross as our example, our model and our motivation for this kind of loving leadership. So have a look at verse 25 to 27. And just try and work out his train of thought there. Have a quick look down at it if you have a Bible. Do you see it? I think it's this. I think it's, well, Christ sacrificially loved the church. And so there are two things that work out from that. Verse 26, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. That is, as Jesus dies on the cross, he deals with the sin of his people. There's nothing we can do to earn forgiveness. We can't make ourselves good enough for God. There's nothing we can do. But as Jesus dies, he he makes his people clean. All the wrong thoughts and actions and attitudes and words, the things that we're so embarrassed by, the things that make a perfectly good God angry, were washed away by Jesus. And as he cleanses us, he makes us holy, which means to be set apart for something else, for a job, for a purpose. Jesus does away with his agenda to cleanse a people for himself who are holy. There's a second bit as well, verse 27. Verse 27 looks ahead to another marriage. 
And you see the goal of Christ's sacrificial love in verse 27. Where's it going? It's going for this set aside for a purpose, holy church, who's going to be a beautiful bride presented to Christ, radiant, without stain, without wrinkle, without blemish. There's no cover-up, there's no beauty cream, there's no makeup. The bride is perfect. Why? Because Christ has finished the work of washing, purifying, transforming, finally getting rid of her sin. So there's two stages. Jesus in the gospel draws a people to himself and cleanses us, makes us holy. But as well as that, he is growing us in him, purifying us, transforming us. And finally, he'll present us to himself, verse 27. Husbands, that is our picture of leadership. That's what love means for us. Self-sacrifice. Wife-centred love. Jesus loves his body, he loves the church, and so Paul continues, verse 28. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. The picture seems to alter slightly. The church is the bride of Christ, of whom he is the husband. The church is the body of Christ, of whom he is the head. And if Jesus is loving the loving head of his body, the church... So the husband is the loving head of his body, his wife, which is why in 31 he can say, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. The husband is to feed and care for his new one flesh body with his wife, a new unit that they've become. I say, do you see, marriage is prophetic. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. Paul says to us that marriage tells a deeper story. It tells the story of Christ and the church. As the husband sacrificially loves and cares for his wife, so the world sees something of what Jesus is like. As the wife willingly, graciously submits to her husband, so the world sees something of how the church submits to Christ. Our marriages should tell a deeper story. Maybe it works a bit like this. Imagine you're having a conversation with your neighbour who you've had round for Sunday lunch, good close friends, you're chatting about church, you're chatting about the gospel, about Jesus. And you, you manage for the first time to get to the the kind of core of some of what the gospel's about. The need that we have to submit to Christ, to give our lives to him, for him to, to lead us, to be in charge. And the conversation finishes. And your neighbour thinks about it, tries to work out what does that actually mean, lying in bed at night, unable to sleep. How does that work out? And then it, and then it clicks because they... They think about how you, husband and wife, relate to each other. And they can see the servant leadership of the husband as he pours himself out for his wife. And they can see how it's good to live under that kind of authority, how it makes sense. So, so maybe it's good to live under the kind of authority that God has. That they work out something of the gospel as they look at you. 
Your marriages tell a deeper story. They're prophetic. Stories often told just to try and sort of work this out in a slightly glib way, I think, but I think still slightly helpful, how these things might potentially pan out. There are stories told of a husband and wife trying to work out what to do next summer for their summer holiday. And they come to an impasse. She wants to go to the beach. She's had a nightmare year. It's, she wants a break. She wants to relax. She wants some heat, some sunshine, some rest, some relaxation, to, to lie down, to read books, to visit nice restaurants. And he wants to go skiing. And so they chat and they pray and they talk about their different ideas and reasons and pros and cons. But they're still at this impasse. And she says, okay, you you make the call, I'll submit to you. And he says, we'll go skiing. No, he doesn't. He says, he says, we'll go to the beach. Because it's what you need. Now, if you're a wife, you're thinking, ah, I can manipulate my husband. But no, no, it's from our hearts. It's because we're submitting to one another. She submits to him and he lovingly puts her needs ahead of his own. So husbands, two thoughts by way of application. I'm sure there are many more. If you're a husband here, if you're a single man hoping to marry in the future, a couple of things to say. Just notice as well that two-thirds of the passage is for husbands that's striking. Maybe we're just slower learners. But two-thirds of it is for us. First thing I want to say is, husbands, you are head all the time. Okay, the husband is not the head of the marriage if he's doing a good job of being like Christ. It seems to me he is head all the time. Not something he has to earn, but something he has given, something that God has established in the framework of marriage. Which means if marriage is prophetic, husbands, we need to ask the question, what kind of a head are we being? Husbands, what does your marriage say to the world? For those looking in, what would they see of the gospel? Are you showing the world what Christ-glorifying servant leadership is? Or me-glorifying self-serving leadership? Husbands, your head all the time. So what does your marriage say? Second, husbands, you're to love her redemptively. Notice that the husband's loving leadership of his wife is for her ultimate good, finally. Husbands can use these kinds of passages to be dominant or overbearing or bossy or unkind, but that is wrong. We must get this right in our minds. Why are we to lead in this way, to love in this way? It is for her sanctification and her godliness. For her finally, verse 27, to be presented to him. Wrinkleless, spotless. So the question, husbands, is how are we leading our wives in that way? I have to say I'm speaking as a very imperfect husband. It's a challenging passage. But I take it at least through praying for her. Praying not just for her daily needs, but for her holiness, her purity, 
Have you thought of turning Ephesians 3, the prayer from a few weeks ago, into a prayer for your wife? I take it through teaching, through thinking how the gospel works out into your marriage, into your life. Feeding your marriage with truth. How easy to take a back seat in that, but to lovingly lead. Perhaps in being an example and telling her what the Lord's been doing in your life. How your heart is doing. How excited by the gospel you are. Perhaps in taking the initiative in opening the Bible up together or reading a book together or praying together. Perhaps encouraging her to get along to stuff. Freeing up her Mondays for Aspire or for the Aspire event coming up. For home groups making space in her day so she can read her Bible and pray. And if you're not married yet, husbands-to-be, then how are you developing those kinds of character traits, those skills? How are you training to be a sacrificial head? Wives, please help us husbands in this. Encourage us to lead gently. Don't be too proud to let us serve you in this way. Don't manipulate your husband so ultimately you end up leading. Pray for your husband that he would be a Christ-like leader. That he would love you well. And if you're like me, then you've got excuses bubbling up. We're looking for the caveats. We're looking for the exceptions. I don't think there are any. There aren't footnotes that are talking about unless you're too tired or too busy or too grumpy or you're cross with them or you just need a bit of me time or you're ill or the other things that bubble up. Husbands were to be loving leaders, wives, willing submitters. If you're here this morning and you're single, if you would like to be married, then I take it there are great applications for thinking about you and your character and potential future spouse looking to grow in these things, looking with God's help to apply them. What about if you will never marry? What about if you're not looking to marry? I'd urge you to pray for your married friends. There might be a sense in which actually you've got license to say to your married friends who are husbands, how are you doing in lovingly leading your wife? Or wives, how are you doing in willingly submitting to your husband? You can look in and you can ask those difficult questions. And we would value that. Now there's one sermon. We're going to look very briefly at chapter 6, verse 1 to 9. Following Jesus changes all kinds of relationships. Relationships between husbands and wives. 
Relationships, too, within our families as we relate to our children. And relationships, too, as you're in the workplace. I want you to notice, as we just look at these, very briefly, these um, first nine verses, that the verb changes. So children are to obey parents in the Lord, verse 1. Slaves are to obey masters, verse 5. Why obey? Well, children first, because it is right, verse 1. Because there's a promise that goes with it, verse 2, and that promise is, verse 3, so that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. I take it that means, generally speaking, obeying parents leads to a better life, leads to blessing. That is how God has ordered this world to function in families. And then slaves, verse 5, why are they to obey? Well, do you see, because you're obeying them as you would obey Christ. When they're watching you, and when they're not watching you, verse 6. You're serving as if you were obeying him, verse 7. Because he is a master who rewards people, verse 8. And thinking of slavery, we need to know there are differences between modern day slavery and slavery then. And there are differences between slavery then and our modern employer-employee relationship now. But I take it as we apply some of these things to us, the principles are very similar. Obedience to our bosses, to those in authority over us, is to be from our heart. Verse 5, we serve with sincerity of heart. Verse 6, we do the will of God from our hearts, which means we're not just trying to impress them or to compete with others, or to work our way up the ladder, or to do the bare minimum to keep our bosses or clients off our backs. Now, at the workplace, our eyes are not on them. Our eyes are on him. We're serving from our hearts. How we work matters to him. How hard we work matters to him. And the issue with just going to the workplace and trying to impress other people is sometimes our bosses aren't there. They can't see us. And if we're just looking to impress them, then we slack off when they aren't there. But if it's him, if it's serving him and it's obeying him, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, then there is never a time when he is not watching. How's your heart at work? Why do you do what you do? Serve as if for him. How has the gospel transformed your relationship, your attitude to those above you in the workplace? Serve with sincerity of heart. Do the will of God from your hearts. And then parents and employers. Parents, especially dads, don't exasperate your kids, but bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. I think the danger, the exasperation thing, seems to be being overly harsh. Don't be overly harsh with your children. Teach them Jesus. Show them Jesus. Show them what living a life of love means. 
and slave masters or employers. Be countercultural as you oversee others. Don't threaten them, verse 9. Do them good, verse 8. Have you got people under you in the workplace? Then your relationship with Jesus should transform how you oversee people. Do them good. Be gentle. Lead them in a way that acknowledges you too are under authority. That you are accountable to another. You are answerable to a master. So do you see, God's plan for the world isn't just a plan for Sundays. It's not just for our time at church. It is to trickle down into the dark areas of our lives to every day of the week, to how we relate to those around us, especially our closest relationships. How is it that the ones that we love the most are the ones that we hurt the most? Husbands and wives, children and parents, in the workplace, the gospel transforms And we find ourselves at the cross, don't we? When we look at the one who is our example, we see something of the darkness in our hearts and our need again of the cross. Asking for God's forgiveness where we failed, rejoicing that he does forgive us, asking for his help, because remember, this is for spirit-filled churches. 5.18, 5.17. If we want marriages... Families, workplaces that show the world something of the character of God, we need to pray for his help. Christ's love is the model and the motivator. And when we get it wrong, which we do, which we will, then he is the one we go to. He is the one who who dusts us down when we fail, sets us on our feet, and helps us to keep going.